What's up? And welcome to another episode of Black in the Maritimes. I'm Fidel. I'm Hillary. I'm Clinton. And today we have a guest, a very special guest, because I'm, I'm actually personally, I'm a fan of the website. I've been a fan for a few years. Uh, we have Camille Dundas. Uh, she is a racial equity consultant. She's the founder of buyblacks.com. Uh, she was a solutions consultant as well. I mean, she's a jack of all trades. I mean, she's been on CTB News. I mean, you've done quite a lot. So welcome, Camille. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So uh, we were talking before we recorded, uh, before we started recording that yeah, you never been to the Maritimes. You, you, you're going to come to the Maritimes, but you've never been to the Maritimes. I will. And I feel like an absolute failure as a Canadian. I feel like it's my it's my duty to at least come out there one time. I, I feel like I can't call myself a real Canadian if I haven't been out there, you know? So I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming out there. I'm going to at least come to Halifax, make it out to PEI, you know, maybe New Brunswick. We'll see, we'll see. Yeah, but I, I mean, we're from I was going to say, if you come... So I was going to say, if you come once, go to PEI or, or Nova Scotia or something. But if you come twice, <laughs> stop in New Brunswick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go if you if you're a black Canadian, go to the blackest places near Nova Scotia. That's 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 where the most exactly. of black yeah, black Canadian history is. Then you can go to PI. Exactly. New Brunswick isn't we we live here, but it's all right. It, 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 <laughs> it is what it is. So uh Camille, so tell us a, a, a bit a bit about a little bit about you. Like where did you grow up and how did you grow up? Oh, yeah. Well, I had an interesting kind of um mishmash of, of how we grew up. I was born in Trinidad and my parents came to uh, Montreal first during a recession in Trinidad. So they decided to come back to Canada. They had been here. My mom had gone to McGill and my, my, my sister was born here. They had kind of gone back and forth. And so they decided to come back to Trinidad, to Toronto. So um, we started off actually Montreal first, then moved over to Toronto. Um, and I, so I was four years old when that happened. And then we stayed here till I was 12. And then my dad, who's from St. Lucia, decided he was going to move us all back there. So then we all moved back to St. Lucia. So from age 12 to 21, I lived in St. Lucia, went to a convent high school run by nuns, the whole nine. It was like complete culture shift. Like whatever the most extreme shift you can think of, like that's how it felt to me being 12, um, coming from Toronto where I could say whatever I want at school. Um, to, to to the convent in St. Lucia where it was like, you can say what you want, but you're going to get some licks. And I was like, okay, this is some next level. Um, and then I came back to Canada when I was 21 to start J school. So I went to Carlson Journalism School um, in Ottawa, and that's when I came back on my own. Okay, so uh, I'm originally Dominican. I'm in the Dominican right now. Uh, okay. Now, I will tell you about Caribbean schools. Yeah. Everybody wears everybody wears uniforms. Uniforms. Mm-hmm. Everybody wears uniforms, and different schools have different uniforms. So That's after right. school, people go to the park. That's usually where the other schools meet. And now, mm-hmm. if you skip skip school, people are going to know who you are because of the uniform that That's you wear. Right. So they're going to know exactly who you. So and and again, I grew up in Catholic schools, and nuns do not play. No, no. So no. they're they're very they're they're very. So talk. Talk to me about when you were a little girl in Toronto yeah, versus a girl in St. Lucia. Mm. Yeah. Like, what was the most shocking thing? You know, 
I don't want to get too deep on you right away, but that's that's me. But <laughs> I would say the most shocking thing to me, honestly, and it's interesting that you ask from a girl's perspective, was the normalization of sexual assault um, in public when I when we moved to the Caribbean. So living in St. Lucia was an atmosphere of having to kind of like accept that anyone can touch you, can like talk to you any type of way. And like, you just kind of have to roll with that. Whereas in Canada, like we're really super strict about personal space and these types of things. And these things are taken really seriously. Whereas I was like 12, 13 years old in my school uniform. And I can remember one time like this guy, I was getting on the bus, you know, the little mini buses, like to, to get back home. And this guy was like calling me like, hey girl, hey girl, like, you know, I was literally 12. And so I just completely ignored him. And then that's like the worst you can do because they get really angry. And then I remember I was holding like two bags and my backpack. I was carrying some like school project. And as I was getting on the bus, he came and like bit my arm, like so hard. Oh and then God. the crazy thing is that like, no one said anything. Like no one, that this was just like normalized. Like I found that, yes, and I didn't have the words like sexual assault like at the time, like I didn't know what that was, but it was just so wild to me that that was just very normalized. So like older men being in a relationship with like with younger girls, like that was something we saw all the time. Like it was so normalized. Like it was, it was very, very hard to, to navigate that because when you would speak up, people would be like, whatever, well, you shouldn't have been doing this or you shouldn't have been doing that. Um, so that was one of the biggest culture shocks for me was the, the immediate like attention, like public attention, um, that I didn't have when I was in Canada. Like I can't remember any time being that age and anyone even noticing me on the TTC, like like, you know, you just go by your business, you know what I mean? Um, and I was one of those kids from like eight, nine years old on the TTC. Um, and I always, I, I felt safe. I never, I don't know if I was safe, but I, we never felt like anything, right? But I, I felt like a, a sense of not being safe when I was there. Well, uh, and, and one of the things that we try to emphasize about different cultures, and even if people like, when people say black culture i mean that's not really a culture because we're we're all so yeah. different we're all yeah. so different in some places but when you think about those islands in the caribbean mm -hmm. and the west indies and stuff like that uh even latin america within within that mm -hmm. sense uh they're very misogynistic places uh yeah. there's there and they're, they're also very religious places as well yeah uh they're, they're both of the and, and one of the problems is that is that it's it's been ruled and done by men for so long that women are treated and it's also by lack of education as well that sometimes women are treated like objects then then okay. uh, just because even in like in places like saint lucia trinidad or or you know saint martin's people say like oh you know if you're not at this age you're not married if you're a woman that's mm. weird for them like, that, that's mm -hmm. odd or like yeah. if a man you can't if a woman maintains a man that's weird as well because they're like oh right. like what do you mean like so so yeah I can definitely understand if you're coming from a big city like Toronto yeah uh, and then going to a 
small place like St. Lucia, especially with, with a place that, that again that has that that type of sardinistic, it must be well. So, but I will say it, though, what with one of the, I mean, there were so many. I don't regret my time living there. Like I absolutely uh, got to love living there because of the the amazing opportunities I got to have. You know, being in a smaller place helps sometimes. Um, helps you to advance quicker. Um, but one of the 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 biggest differences on a positive note um, was this was that sense of community. There's a trade-off, right? With a small, like, like, as you know, living in a small town, right? There's a trade-off, like everybody knows your business, but everybody knows your business. You know what I mean? And what, that was a huge difference from Toronto. There was support, right? Living in Toronto, we were very, I felt like isolated. Whereas now we had like all these cousins and people and like neighbors and all these people around who cared and who you couldn't mess up because they're going to tell your moms. You know what I mean? Like I tried to like do, do stuff like low key underhanded, like whatever. I would get caught every single time. <laughs> it's not like I wouldn't even learn to, I would just keep doing it thinking, Oh yeah, yeah they won't notice that. They won't, they won't notice. And you, somebody you know, will, somebody will snitch. Somebody. Will oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 So that's a big difference to the community, the support, um, and that network having that, that village, right. That was amazing. So what made your parents move to St. Lucia out of all of the places? Yeah, well, my dad is from St. Lucia, um, at, but the way it happened was that my dad is a, a civil engineer and he was educated at University of West Indies. And when we came to Toronto, he could not, like many immigrants, could not get his qualifications recognized here. And so for the years that we were living in Canada, I saw my father do a range of odd jobs over that seven, eight years, installing doors, cleaning carpets, driving a cab. Um, you name it, right? And he was like a very proud person. Um, and he would not, you know, accept that they would not recognize his degree. So he was not going to do any conversion exams, any whatever. He was like, nope, this is this is my degree and you'll accept it or, or F off. Like that's the kind of guy he was, right? Well, we paid the price for that financially, let's say. Um, <laughs> but that's who he was. And then he got an opportunity, a job opportunity in St. Lucia and decided, you know what? Just like screw this Canadian dream business. Like we're going back. Um, so we were, and I say we, the kids in the family, we were like very opposed to this. And we put forth like, like documentation and arguments. We put forward emotion of like why this is unfair. Like, you know, whatever, whatever you're taking me away from my friends, yada, yada, yada. And we didn't want to go there at all. But looking back, it truly was the best thing that could happen to me. I really attribute all of my, my work ethic, the confidence that I have in myself as a black woman. It makes a huge difference in a black person's life to grow up in a black majority country. It, it makes a huge difference. And so I, I really, yeah. I was going to ask you that, like, like I, at least you have the, 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 the luck or the privilege to grow up mm -hmm. in a, in a black majority country yeah. where everybody is black and nobody really noticed the difference because it's, it is what it is. In fact, it's, it's kind of sometimes the opposite. Now you're a grown woman. When you come back to Canada, yes. you're 21 years old, mm -hmm. you're an adult, you, you got your friends in St. Lucia, you graduated from there. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing that you noticed when you came back that was kind of like, whoa, this is kind of different? Yeah, it was such a strange duality for me because I was Canadian on paper, right? But 
of course I like had my St. Lucian accent. I was, I had never even been back to Canada for a visit, like during the, during that time. Right. Like I was fully un-Canadianized. And the first thing that struck me was, okay, no one knows where St. Lucia is. And everyone thinks I'm from somewhere in Jamaica. So the first few weeks of university were just constant correcting people being like, no, it's not in Jamaica. No, there's like a whole Caribbean chain with like different islands, you know? Um, so it was like the first semester was just like educating people. Um, the other thing I noticed you know, there's a really strange way. I don't know if it's just Canadians. I don't, I don't know if it's just white people as a whole, but I don't want to generalize. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a weird, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. You, you go to class, you meet someone in class, right? Tell me if you've experienced this, okay? So I know I'm not crazy. You sit next to them. You're like, hey, you talk, right? Okay. So you think, okay, you know this person, right? Like, okay, cool. And then the next day you'll see them in the hallway and you'll be like, hey, and they'll just walk right by you. Yep. Yes. What the hell is that? Yes. I'm like, <laughs> what? Like in St. Lucia, yeah. that would, ne- if I meet someone new, like I know you now, like I see you like, yo, yo, we could, you know, like I, I, I'll check for you. I'm going to buy you a little patty. You know, we good. Like every time I see you, I'm going to, I'm going to hail you up, you know? But here it's like, and I could never understand it. I could never crack that code. I'm like, why do they treat you like that? Like, why, how, how can you be talking to me one minute and then I see you in the hall next next day and you just walk right by like you don't know me. And, and it's like, I think it's what you said before, that that's the trade-off. I mean, when you grew up in countries like, like to, there, there's a com- sense of community, right? Because uh, I think... Uh, if you if you travel to Latin America or some places, uh, a lot of people know that the government won't help you. Nobody help you. Whoever's mm-hmm. going to help you is your next door neighbor mm-hmm. or your fe- or your fellow president. So they depend. The mm-hmm. people in in those communities depend more on them than yeah. than them and then you know systems. And here in Canada, I think it's a little bit. You know, it, it has happened. The same thing that has happened to you has happened to me and you're not crazy. Okay. It's happened to a okay. couple of people. <laughs> That's a great uh, way of actualizing that. I never, I never thought of that because, you know, among black people though, here in Canada, like black Canadian people who I met, I didn't, that they didn't do that, you know? So I was just like, why, what is going on? Like it was a weird, different culture, you know? I, I found in university because I went to Invested de Moncton, which has a very big French international population and then less or so of like mixed race people. And then there's the white population mm-hmm. and any of the classes that had a lot of white people, the same thing, very clicky. I'll say hi to you in class. I don't know you at lunch. I don't know you at other things, but then moving from New Brunswick to Toronto, every black woman I walk by compliments me on my braids, on my hair, on my skin, the black men I run into choppers drug murder, giving me a nod. Hello. And that's a sense of community. I never had in New Brunswick because I was one of five in high school. So for me, that just the culture shift of provinces has been, sounds like what you're describing, but the reverse, I like in Toronto, it's always like, Hey, what's good. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, (laughs) like that's something I never experienced in New Brunswick. It was lonely. So what I'm describing happened in Ottawa, so even because I went to Carleton, so even moving after I was done at school, even just moving fr- from Toronto back from Ottawa back to Toronto was a, a massive shift. And I was like, yes, I should have gone to Ryerson. I should have gone. I should have just just stayed in Toronto because even just like walking down Front Street and hearing 
Trini accents, hearing Jamaican accents, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'm home. This is where I should be. And it was familiar to me because I had grown up there when I was much younger, right? Um, so maybe let's just put it down to Ottawa, okay, y'all? <laughs> I'm gonna give the rest of the white people a, a pass. I'm I've sorry. been there too, and I agree with that as well. That's where my dad is, and I'm like, I don't know these people. <laughs> these people do not know me either. <laughs> now, how was your experience like in, in in university? Like you studied journalism? Was that what yeah. you studied? Yes. So at, at Carleton, I was the only Black person in that entire program, um, in that entire journalism program. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I can't say at the time that I, I focused on that. I, I was really just, I was on my own. So I was really hyper aware that I had to succeed. Um, so I was, you know, working, paying my own way, et cetera, that type of thing. So I was just extremely focused. Um, so I would go out once in a while, but you know, when I looked at like how the other kids were pretty much like, you know, blowing their, their parents' money, I was like, okay, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, um, I was very, very hyper-focused. Um, and the, it was, it was a great experience in, in hindsight, I, I do wish I, I, and if there's any journalism, um, hopefuls watching, I did regret not going to a more hands-on program, like something at Ryerson, because the, the program at Carleton is very academic. And so it wasn't until my third year that I even picked up a camera. So, um, I do regret that in a sense, but overall good experience. I just, I couldn't take the cold and I couldn't take the people. So, so what made you study journalism? Like what, what, what yeah. made you be a journalist? If you, if you asked anyone in my family, they would tell you that I was going to be in media from the time I could talk. Um, it was all I ever wanted to be. My mom was always like, okay, you're going to be like Christian M. Poor. You're going to be this, you're going to be that. Like it was, my mom was like very into like television news. So she would always like make me watch everything with her, um, everything either I was going to be a writer, like a novelist or, or a journalist. Like it was just all I ever wanted to do. I, I can't even tell you why. Um, but there were things along the way that pushed me in that direction. My, my dad and I on weekends in St. Lucia, the, the newspapers come out on a weekend and we had this kind of ritual where he would go and buy all the papers and then we would come home and I would sit like he would be on the chair and I would sit on the floor and I would wait for him to finish reading the paper. He would give me the funniest part first. Then when he was done reading the paper, he would hand it on to me and then he would read the other one. Then he would hand it on to me and all the other kids like weren't interested in reading or like anything like that. And so I would just sit there like pouring over the pages of the newspaper. By the end of the afternoon, like our fingertips were covered in ink, but like I love just looking through it. And I remember what something that stuck out to me from one of those newspapers was on the masthead was the, the phrase, um, the pen is mightier than the sword. And I thought, wow, I think my 13 or 14 year old brain was like, okay, that means that I can have power through my words. Like I can do something. I can, I can have power. And as someone who felt powerless as a young girl living in that situation, uh, in that environment rather, um, I wanted power. I wanted some type of control over my life. I wanted to be able to, to make a dent somewhere. And I thought, wow, if my words can change people and change things, and that's where I wanna be. It just so happened that the house that we lived was about 20 steps away from the national television news broadcaster, happenstance. And there was this show 
that used to come on um, called Video Vibes, and it was like a like a like a like a music show, like whatever, whatever, right? And my friend and I, we used to watch this. We're like, you know what? This show is so crappy. Like, we could do such a better job than this. She goes, let's write them a letter. Let's tell them that we should host. I'm like, yeah. So we write this letter. We drop it. I go walk and I drop it off. We're just like trying to hype ourselves up. Do you know they called us and they're like, yeah, why don't you come? You guys come and host the show. They didn't pay us, of course. But we were like, what? We're like, yes. So we're 17. Okay. And we go and take over this guy's show and start hosting this show. And do we not like double, triple the ratings? They get all kinds of sponsorship, KFCs, advertising. This all like the big companies are advertising. It was the best summer of my life. Like we were little celebrities, like in our own right. Just just walk onto the set and just start interviewing people. Like no training, no nothing, like zero, nothing. Just pure hubris, right? So, and so hold then, up. You, you, you hosted a show in St. Yeah. Lucia by sending oh, yeah. a letter. Oh, yeah. 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 100%. Wow. It was a whole summer, like a whole season, like at least 20 something episodes. I wish I could find it. I kind of wish I it's buried somewhere. Um, and then one night, the director um, told me, hey, you want to watch uh, how we make the news? I'm like, yeah. So I sat in the newsroom and the lights went down and he started counting down. And I was like, oh, my like mind blown i'm like this is amazing like this is where i want to be like just it was such a rush like i was like this is awesome it was it was like a combination of like movies and theater and acting and but like real life and like everything together and i was like this is me this is what i'm gonna do and so i i decided to pursue television oh wow that is an amazing story so you just one day you said i could do it better than this guy and you just said that that is quite (laughs) remarkable actually i mean I, I had some experience here at, at local TV stations and radio stations. And I, I mean, again, I think that's the trade-off because you're in a smaller place. You could, you have access to that. That's what I'm saying. That's what I was uh, alluding to by opportunities, right? Like, I don't think I could have ever done that in Toronto. I couldn't roll up to much music and be like, yo, I can do this better. <laughs> Come on, you know, it's not happening. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That George Stephanopoulos guy. No, the Strombo, <laughs> whatever. I, I can do it better than him. Yeah, that's right. I, so- I heart to Strombo though. He's amazing. The other amazing opportunity I got what, in one of my last years in St. Lucia was getting to write about Nelson Mandela's life and perform a poem for him and meet him and present him with the poem that I wrote. Like that was one of the most memorable points of my life ever. And it was because every year at school I would perform, like I would write entire plays and poems and I would, you know, there's maybe the same thing in DR. There's a high like focus on the arts in the Caribbean, right? Like at school, every year we do elocution. We do like drama competitions. We do singing competitions, like inter inter school competitions, right? Like it's there's a high focus on this. So my principal said, "Hey, Nelson Mandela is coming to Saint Lucia for like a, a state visit." She's like, "We want you to write an ode to his life." I'm like, "Wow, okay." So I wrote this, performed it with like three other girls, and then there was a a, a, a children's school choir behind us, like backing us up all these like new that video i do have so that one i can send you um there is like international media there like running us down like we get to perform this thing put it on a plaque walk over hand it to him get get a hug from him and he's like this is so amazing y'all are so special beautiful and i'm like like that's a once in a lifetime moment right like i don't think i 
these are again opportunities I wouldn't have had elsewhere. So that that definitely is a once in a lifetime moment. I hope you have a picture of that because that is priceless. <laughs> yeah, I have pictures and I do have a grainy video somewhere on my drive. <laughs> well, no, no, that that's definitely so. I mean that so. Going back to school, you you did have a bunch of opportunities and you had experience in the media business in in St. Lucia. You you know what you want, which is kind of good because when you know it early, I mean, we don't get to not not all of us get to know what we want in an early age. At, yeah. at least you got you got something that you wanted to do in an early age. So that's that great. That gets your head. So you start studying and. You you try to finish. What's what's the end goal? Do you have an end goal that at that moment when you're in university? And what was it at that time? Yeah. <sighs> wow. You bring me back. So my end goal at that time was to get a job on the fifth estate, the CBC's fifth estate. Like that was my only goal in life. <laughs> okay. I adored that show. I adored everyone who worked on it. I'm like, cause it's investigative journalism. It's documentary. It's like, that was my thing. After I graduated, the year I graduated, I went to Rwanda to make a documentary and I stayed in Rwanda for about two months. Uh, we made this documentary, my, my classmate and I, her name's Andrea Thompson, shout out to Andrea. And it was about women's access to contraception. It came about in the weirdest of ways because the house we were staying in, I had birth control pills in the closet of the room. The housekeeper came in, was cleaning the room, and she brought the pills to me. And she said, can I have one of these? And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, like, yeah. I was so confused. I'm like, you can't just take one. I'm like, this is something you, you take every day. And she was like, oh, uh, my friend, my friend is pregnant and she doesn't want to be. So one, I just went into like, you know, help mode right away. I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's talk to your friend. Like, let's figure out what we can do. And in doing that started to realize what the situation was like for women there where number one, the education level about contraceptives was so low because it was pretty much prevented by the church. Like they would just prevent anyone from talking about this. And culturally, like you were saying, if you're, when you're married, your husband expects you to have a baby right away. And if you don't have a baby, the husband will leave the wife and the family will fully support that. And so we decided to do some research about this. And we found this one group of renegade doctors who were pretty much risking their lives, traveling from village to village, educating women about condoms, about birth control, about this. So there were places and pockets where you could access this stuff, but it was so like underground. So I found this so fascinating that me, like as a 20 something year old, like take this for granted that I can, you know, take, get birth control wherever, right? And that was the first doc that I made. And so I came back to Canada and I had this uh, job waiting for me at the CBC. I'm like, awesome. It's my first job. I met by chance one of the hosts of the Fifth Estate at another chance event that I got invited to at the Governor General's residence. I was working at CBC and they were having some... Uh, Mikhail Jean was the GG at the time, and they were asking for a young journalist to come. And the HR person said, hey, you, you should go. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I can't go to the governor general's office. I'm like, I don't have any clothes. Like, I don't have, I was like dirt poor, like just starting this job, come out of school. She's like, 
I'll, I'll help you. Never forget, her name is Kelly. Awesome lady. She brought to the office like six different dresses in like six different sizes. I'm like, why do you have all these sizes? She's like, because these are all the sizes I've been, okay? Don't judge me. I'm like, okay, okay. And then we go into the bathroom. I try on all these dresses and she literally loans me a dress to go to this event. I meet one of the hosts there and I saw her and I was like, I literally took a drink to get courage. And I went to her, I'm like, I am your biggest fan. Like I, this, like I have this documentary. I, I can't remember what I told her, but she's like, okay, here's my card. Call me if you come, if you want to come to Toronto and I'll get you to speak to someone. I go to Toronto, I call her. She sets up a meeting with the head of the documentary department in CBC, right? Remember, remember at this time, like I'm just out of school, okay? <laughs> like Z, confidence level is, right? And I walk into the guy's office. He sits me down and he says to her, okay, cool, okay, okay, see you later. She, she does the introduction and she leaves us, right? As soon as she closes the door, he says to me, all right, you're, I'm only speaking to you because of her, so let's make this fast. Let's, let's get this over with. So I pitch him the doc, I tell him the story about the women, about this and this, whatever. There was a Canadian connection. We had found these nuns who, who, who were Canadian, who opened this like um, health center there. They were kidnapped during, during the genocide. Like that, this amazing story, you know? And he goes, um, why would I give you money to do that when I have like 10 journalists in here who can... So I did my pitch. I said, you know, my value, this, this, whatever. He's like, okay. And he, and he literally, he patted me on the, on the thigh. And he was like, listen, what you need is a You what? need someone to finance your first film, okay? And if you're able to finance it on your own, I'd be impressed. If you come back to me, that would really impress me. And then maybe I will give you a chance. Wow. I feel like I'm watching a movie right here. <laughs> I feel like I'm sitting here watching a movie. I gotta, I gotta interject. Wow. Listen, that... And I still can, like, as I'm telling it to you, I feel like the feeling that I felt. I, I remember walking out, walking onto Front Street, just being like, like, this is, this is real life. Like, this is reality. Like, this is what I didn't. And I have to admit to you, I absolutely allowed that to crush my dreams. Like, I gave up after that. I completely gave up. I, my goal, like I told you, my, my goal was to be a documentary filmmaker, like, to be on the Fifth Estate. And I was like, okay, I'm done. I'll figure something else out. I did, maybe a year after that, get an interview with the, with the heads of the Fifth Estate, different people. Um, and it was, it, I almost got a job there. It was down to me and another guy, apparently. And my, the mistake I made, and, I, and if there's any young people watching about interviewing, right? Like I, because I was a super fan of the Fifth Estate, I knew like every episode I could describe, like I knew the show inside out, right? And so when, whatever he was asking me during the interview, I was like, yeah, this, this, and this, and here's what I would do differently. And da, 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 I was on fire. And at the end, he's like, okay, do you have any questions for us? And I was like, no. I said, you know, like, I, I know this show. Like, I don't have any questions about the show because I know the show, you know? And I'm like, this is this. And he told me transparently, he's like, that's what, that was, that's what lowered your score on the interview. And that's what gave the other person like a, a, a leg over you because you didn't ask any questions. Um, and so that's something to remember about just interviewing skills. Like I didn't even know that was a thing at the time. Like I just walked in just being myself and just, you know, just my passion and my love for the show I felt would be enough, you know? Um, but yeah, so that was, that was a tough blow to, to, to get so close to my dream job and then to have it taken away. Um, but he was really nice about it. I got to say he was, he's like, you are so talented. Like, please stay in charge. Like he was very nice about it. 
I so, mean, you got close. You you got really really close. close. So that, that that's a, that. So Clinton, is it, you you had a question. Clinton, you're on mute. Yeah, you're on mute. Sorry, y'all. Uh, yeah, well, I feel like that was that kind of like a breaking point for you. Sort of like you could have kind of given up and gone a different direction at that point, or you just you just kept on moving on to uh, to get to that next level. And I, we know you did. Uh, we've learned so much about your life, and I have some other questions for you, just about work and career. So you yeah. you worked for CTV. Yeah. For I'm not sure how many years as a consultant, or were you on the air? And then also, of course. I'd love to talk about the website a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my first job out of school was at the CBC. So I was there for a year. I did a program where you start off, you do like a one-year program, six months in radio, six months in TV. Um, that's the program where I accidentally found out I was a diversity hire, by the way. So there was that. Um, <laughs> no one bothered to tell me that it was like a program for diverse students. I was like, cool, cool. Um, and then, so I did that. It wasn't a super great experience. I was on the air, which was great. Like that's what I thought I wanted. And then when I realized how much micromanaging is involved with on-air talent, I was like, oh no, this is this is not mm -mm, this is not going to work. And I realized that producers have way more power. I started getting into producing. Um, so when I left Ottawa was during the recession, the Great Recession, two thousand eight, and I came to Toronto and I started all over again. And I was doing an in an unpaid internship at City TV, and I was teaching English online at night, like to pay my rent. So I was teaching English to these like men in Saudi Arabia, these like businessmen. It's another weird story. Cause like you weren't allowed, like I could, I wasn't allowed to like show my arm. Like I had to be like, like this, like the entire time it was super interesting experience. Yeah. Um, but doing that to pay rent, doing the unpaid internship. So, I, and by the way, it was from like midnight to four o'clock because of the time difference, right? That I was doing the teaching, sleep for a bit, go to the internship, then like hit up friends of mine or people I had met in the city who were videographers, like lie my way into fashion shows, into like places to be like, yeah, yeah, I work with City. Meantime, I'm an unpaid intern. Um, but just to get like stuff for my demo reel, I needed stories for my reel, right? So I would be hustling, hitting the streets, like doing interviews, putting stories together um, so I could shop my reel around the place, right? And um, so did that. They strung me along, said, oh yeah, we have a job for you. The unpaid internship went on for seven months. This is now today illegal. Um, but <laughs> seven months I worked there unpaid. And then I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm done with this. I went to work like at a, as a receptionist at a hair salon. And then I applied to go teach English in South Korea. And I, I got accepted. I was doing everything. And then I met my husband and I did not go to South Korea. Wow. So, <laughs> so coincidentally, the same time I met my husband, I got a call from CP24 asking me to cover a mat leave. And so I said, okay, I met this guy. There's this job. It's a one year, but all right, South Korea isn't going anywhere. Let me do the one year. And then I ended up just staying in with Bell Media for the next seven years and starting by blocks with my husband. Okay, wow. Um, so how many years has it been since you two founded and launched BuyBlacks.com? Yeah, BuyBlacks was founded in 2013. So about eight, eight years now. Um, and it was, it was Roger's idea. He, it started off as just the business directory. And 
a friend of ours said, hey, that's great, but you need to get need to give people a reason to come back to this website. Why don't you do stories about them? And so me with my journalistic background, it just kind of made sense that I would come on as editor in chief and he um, is the publisher. So he deals with the business side, the sales side. Um, he comes up with all the bright ideas uh, that, that you see on the site, like Black Restaurant Week, the People's Choice Awards, like all those things that keep the momentum going. He comes up with all those amazing ideas. And I focus on the editorial. Oh, wow. That, that's, that's really pretty cool. cool. Sorry, I just have one more question regarding the Buy Blacks website. And so I'm just curious, like, so during 2020, uh, you must have must seen like a huge uh, uptick in interest and viewership and, and stuff to the website. And uh, just like a lot of other articles that we've read, how sort of like the wave has died down, companies that pledged support didn't really offer their support, uh, the guilt is fading away. Um, just to kind of cross-reference Mm-hmm. What's what's the change now from like 2020 to 2021? I'm sure like still mm-hmm. huge growth and way more than ever before. But as people turn their attention to mm-hmm. the new topic of the month or the new issue of the, the times, how, how has that changed? Yeah. And and this is my observation. The way I see that is through the business side of the business sales side of the business. Right. So it's me just observing kind of like what Roger is going through and 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 um, eavesdropping on those conversations, right? N- not much has changed on the editorial side because we was always talking about black people. So we still go talk about black people, right? And, um, but for sure, first, with, okay, with the pandemic, everything was like, we were like, we were, everything got cut off, like income completely, sales were just like zero, like, cause our sales were, are still um it's our uh revenue model is ads right it's 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 ad driven and a lot of those ads were event based and so when events were done so were the ads everyone pulled the plug um so we're like okay we just okay we'll just we'll just keep going then after the racial revolution as we like to call it um there certainly was a lot of performative um support um we didn't see i can't tell you that i saw like a wave of donations or any in fact we're not set up to receive donations or anything like that but like we set up a patreon or whatever but that didn't really go anywhere um what has shifted though long term is i i feel like there is more and I'll put it this way, bargaining power on our end, it feels like something has shifted in the sense that, no, we don't have to accept that anymore. So when, you know, HBO or Cineplex or wherever, like these big, you know, corporations email now being like, oh, hey, can you promote this on your site? And we'll give you like six free tickets, like which is what they would do like pre, you know, pandemic um we'd still say no but now (laughs) and if roger was here he would tell you he feels no ways about telling them like why he's saying no like he will fully be like um in this like um uh environment i think it would be prudent for x company to show more uh support for the black community by actually investing in black businesses i think that you should like he would just he just like goes in on them now right whereas before he maybe would just ignore it but now like he goes in Right. And I feel like there's a little bit more, like I said, because we have like this bargaining power now. It's like, we, no, no, no. Like, we need to remind you, like, we do not have to accept this shit from you anymore. So we're going to tell you we're not accepting it and we're going to tell you why. 
Oh man, you know, I, as soon as you said that, I instantly identified with that. And I've never vocalized that before, but I was actually kind of talking about it a few days ago. I'm a business owner here hmm. in this town here, and we're all over social media, right? And one thing I was saying is that uh, whereas pre COVID and the you call it the racial revolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah As a business owner, you know, I always had <laughs> to be so sensitive, so polite, mm. so nice, so mm. afraid of getting people's like yes. sort of it's a salon spa, like hatred lashing out on me. I couldn't yes. defend myself. You just had to kind of like take take it, take it. Like, yes. oh, here's like here's your six free tickets. Yeah. And one thing that I found has really changed in my business since then is I'm a lot uh more confident in sticking up for myself, for my yeah. team, calling out lies. If people are saying things like yeah. it doesn't happen often, but even if it happens like twice a year, calling out people's lies about us, like when they're mm -hmm. and similar to your husband, Roger, like yeah. I feel like, and I feel like I can do that because the yeah. first time I did it, I didn't get that sort of backlash from the mobs of the internet. Yeah. Just kind of yeah. teaming up to attack my business. So and a bit what I want to point out for that, and this is a point that I hammer home it, the reason that, you know, and I caught like, we're okay. Let me say this politically correct. <laughs> okay. Black people who are either business owners or who work in like corporate Canada, like we have a nice comfortable situation happening. Right. The only reason that we are empowered now to call these things out is because of our black peers who have been risking their lives and livelihood in the streets protesting. Yeah. Yes. And wow. then yeah. the reason I call this out is because what I noticed, some of the conversations I noticed was like, oh, like, what's the point? Like, why are they protesting again? There's a lot of Black people who are having these type of conversations. Like, oh, what's the point? Like, they're just wasting time. Like, why, they, why do they keep protesting? They're just... And I was like, hold up. You better basically bow down and be thankful to them because without that street protest, we would not have this newfound confidence. We would not have the confidence to call out our bosses now to be like, oh, actually, no, actually, you know, that was racist. Here, let me tell you why. We wouldn't have that. And so as black people, I want us to remember that we need all different forms of pushback, all different forms of protest, of rebellion in order to get to our goal, right? Just because you're a black person who doesn't go in the street and protest, that does that doesn't that doesn't make you <laughs> any better than anyone. You have to be finding something that you can do in your corner that feels authentic to you to protest, to push back against the system. And so every day I thank and the, the thing is, the people, the black people who are out protesting are some of the most marginalized among us. They have the most to lose and they are out there fighting for me. They are out there on the front lines, getting arrested, getting caught on camera, having their, their livelihoods at stake, right? Bringing their kids along. And so I want us to remember that, that, that we all need each other in the, in this fight, you know? I've been on this show almost a year and a half and I gotta say, I've never heard, um, things put in that perspective in that kind of way before so that's thank you for that and i mean that's pretty cool that what you said because I, I think that's one of the reasons why i myself started the, the podcast and I, I tell people this all the time i'm like i am not the marching guy i am not gonna be out there rah rah letter 
but I do have a way of pushing against the system. And this is yeah. one, of, one of the ways that, that we kind of do this, uh, just because of the fact that there's different, I, I feel like, uh, and again, I don't know if people have read this book. I, re- I really recommend it. It's called The Art of War. It's a very, very old book. Uh, I think mm-hmm. people say that that there, there's different ways of view. Like, it's just not, one way to 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 win a war you cannot just be like oh if you have the it's not the guy that has the best missiles it's not the guy that has the most troops it's the the person that has the best strategy and you can hit the different strategies depending on where you are so i think uh, i think that what you said is really important because people can find you don't have to march you don't have you can if that's what you want to do uh yeah. and, and you, you you can protest and be the loudest voice that's definitely commendable, supportive, but there's different ways that to do to start pushing back against some things, and and I definitely I think that's that's pretty important. Now I I wanted to ask you something because I, I mean, you set up all the positions that you worked at CTV, CP24. You pretty much worked at all the major TV providers yeah. in in Canada. That's that's yeah. basically what we could say. I mean, the only one that you're missing maybe be APTN, oh. but that's a different. And yeah. global, okay. And uh, those play pretty too. That's the only two that, that I could say. And one probably you won't get there for obvious reasons. Uh, but <laughs> the global is definitely. But I feel that when you when it comes to those type of positions, when it comes to journalism, TV, communications, media, you feel that you know, and that has happened to me in different stages, in different types of environments in Canada, that you're the only black person in the room. Mm-hmm. And it's like like that. And when it comes to journalism and media, I I seen that in Canada that we're not that diverse. We're trying now. Definitely, we're trying now. Uh, but we it definitely seems like there's missing something. Did you ever realize that every time you went to one of those jobs that you had? Absolutely. And what I would say is that in the beginning, like in my first job. Um, I was, yes, I was certainly the only black person in the room and I was the most junior person. And what I did at that point was I tried to be as unblack as possible. I tried to be as, I tried to assimilate as much as I could because I thought that that is what I would, that's what I needed to do to succeed. And so I didn't pitch any stories from the community. Um, I tried to distance myself from my own community as much as I could until one day I was coming out. Can I cuss on this or is that going to be? Yeah, of course you can curse all you want. One day I was coming out of the hairdressers on bank street, getting my 24 inch weave because that's what I needed to do to look like the other white girls on air. Right. And I came out of the hairdresser onto the street and it was, I remember it was a bright sunny day and I was feeling myself way. So I'm walking on the street, going to catch my bus to go home. And this white man is walking towards me and pay no mind. But as he gets closer to me, he leans in and says, you nigger. I got called the same thing on Bank Street. <laughs> I got called a skinny nigger bitch Ottawa. outside the Beaver Tail stand in Ottawa. Right? And I was like, wow. And I tell you that only because it was... A moment for me where I realized I was like, damn, girl, like, no matter what you do, you are black. So you know what? Get used to it and start loving it. Because no matter what you do to yourself, that's how they see it. That's the story of OJ. (laughs) Jay-Z. Anyone who's listening, they should should go check that song out. And from that time, I said, okay, I'm the only black person in the room. Then I'm going to bring these black stories. Because I looked around and I said, well, if no one else is bringing these, then how are these stories getting told? 
And so I just started to be unapologetic about it. Over the years, I just started pitching every amazing, I didn't pitch a story because it was black. I pitched amazing stories that happen to be black that need to be told. And I was just unapologetic about it. And I would just call stuff out either through humor or through, like I remember one, um, one time I was, we were going to, every morning you do like a pitch meeting, right? And actually there was one other black woman who worked on the team with me and we were finishing up some other work. So we came to the meeting a couple minutes late and um, all the seats were taken. So we just stood there. And then one of the guys made a joke. He's like, oh, no, 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 you guys, you guys got to sit in the back. I said, oh, no, no, no. Those days are over. We, we, we ain't sitting in the back, bro. <laughs> I'm like, make room, make room. And he, everyone laughed, but he was like, his face was like, red like he was so embarrassed like he was like so he's like you know that's not what I you know how they get you know when you <laughs> very defensive right <laughs> or it's February 4th and I pitch a black history month story and the white producer's like aren't we done with black history month now like do we re- do we still need this like aren't we done like that's the type of responses you know you would get right so you have to like be on it you have to stand up for it and keep pushing or else it just goes by the wayside. Yeah, and I, and I think I I had said this many times in different places, and, and you know, it it comes sometimes like you you say it so much, like hey, like let's do this, let's do that, like to teach it, and people come with like, oh, it's it's not Black History Month or things like that. That eventually you become what they call the angry black man or the angry oh, yeah. black woman. That you're like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, like, uh, like I'm I'm not trying to be rude, but you know, like uh, it, it's only like if you guys are not are like allies or not racist, then how come I'm the only black person here? How come there's only two of us and we only get to do this once a month or or twice a week or whatever? And you guys do it every day. And and I think yeah. that's and that, now, yeah. I really enjoy my position on the outside of mainstream media as a media critic. Cause now I just get to like collect, I have a document where I collect all their faux pas and then I'm hoping like one day I'll get hired to just like tell them all about it. Like every time I'm like, Oh, put that in the file. Like when you mentioned black history month, I will see on like city, city TV. I have no problem saying their name either. All the low, all of them do this. So it's not just them. All of them do this. We're Black History Month, right? You'll see a, a news package, a story about like a young entrepreneur, like a, 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 an 18-year-old who starts this awesome cupcake business or whatever. And I'm like, awesome. What the hell does that have to do with Black History? When 364 days of the year, y'all feature the most basic ass white people doing the most basic stuff, like like starting a cupcake company, nothing against cupcakes, love it. But do you see like the difference in how, in the coverage, like white people just have to do the bare min and they'll get coverage. But if I start a cupcake company, I have to wait till black history month. Why? Like they don't, they don't even see this stuff. They don't even realize, they think they're doing a good thing. Oh, but we featured them. I'm like, but this is not black history. Like a young kid starting a company, like that should be everyday coverage. That should be everyday news. Just like when you f- feature a white person, but they, it's so hard for them to see their own biases. It's very difficult. Well, and it also, it, it happens a lot in the tech sector, right? Like, uh, like every time a basic, if somebody that's Caucasian does the basic thing and they get featured, like, well, one of the biggest uh, stories, and I don't know if you guys ever seen it, is the Elizabeth Holmes. She had a company called Theranos. Yeah. And uh, oh. it, it was it was all a fraud. And this yeah. was this this was this white woman, mm-hmm. very, mm-hmm. very, very eloquent, very beautiful yes, woman. Attractive and yes, yeah. fit the part. And, 
and she got billions of dollars and she had a fraud. And in America, there is, uh, I don't know if it's uh, Ulsa Burns, I think she was the first black CEO of Xerox. Uh, Ursula Burns, that's her name. She broke history. She literally, the first Mm -hmm. black woman to ever become CEO, ever do everything, didn't get even half or a quarter or no. She has a book Mm -hmm. right now. She gets Mm. zero coverage (laughs) of everything. And you're like, wait a minute, this woman beat the odds. Literally, Mm. she beaten the odds of, Mm. of, of, of succeeding and gets zero. And this girl that dropped out of school did a fraud and she got billions of dollars in mainstream attention. But but again, that's that that's something that we we kind of understand because of the color of our skin. And again, if Oprah can get it on Switzerland by being black, we can all get it. Like that's that's pretty much yeah, like, well, yeah. well, that's that's, but, you that's know, how I there's there's real harm done through media bias. Like it's not just, you know, okay, exclusion, but it's actual harm that these biases can cause when, for example, putting up like, um, I think it was, no, it was CTV that got called out the other day. That's why I love social media now. Like Twitter, it's going to come for you. Black Twitter will come for you. CTV put up a photo of this story out of, I believe it was Australia where the mother had murdered her children. And it so happened the children had a black nanny and they took a photo of the nanny holding pictures of the children, like looking sad. And they used that photo for the tweet. But the headline was mother, like murderer, like basically the the, the title was showing that like the, the black nanny was the one who killed the children. Like that's what it was implying. And people called them out immediately, immediately, immediately. But I was able to get a screenshot from my files. But then they deleted it, right? But this happens over and over again, especially with young black black men in Toronto, when who are are are, are caught up in the system, or and they even when they are murdered, they decide to use a, a, a mugshot instead of their graduation photo. Or, and then you see the difference in how in how um, uh, white men who commit crimes are treated in the media. It's a it's a complete. Complete. It's so obvious to me and to the rest of us. And, and you just keep scratching your head like, how can you not see this? The most recent example is the, the, the young kid in the States that, that murdered the, the protesters on the street. Yes. I think he was 17. Yes. I, I said this on the show back then. Mm-hmm. Um, all the photos I could find of him were pictures of him like by a lake or in, on a sports yeah. team or yeah. like with his family. There, there's not a single mugshot, nothing. They made him look like this nice little kid. And every... Story, story with a black person is, is always the mugshot. It's always like yeah. the worst and possible. What you have photo. to understand about that is that police, this system, police are complicit with media in this system because what the, the excuse that the media will use is, oh, well, we're just using what the photo that the police sent us. No, it's not an accident. And so, and yeah. so if, the police, if the police don't send anything, then you go off and look for your own, right? But the police will decide whether they want... There's a mugshot for that guy, I can tell you that. There's a mugshot for everyone who's been through the system, right? But if the police do not release that mugshot to the media, it's intentional. It's intentional. Think about it, right? Think about the fact that everyone who has been accused of a crime has a mugshot. But the police decide when or when not to release that to the media. But you also so, got asked the question of like that housekeeper and the nanny. Like, was that really an accident, or did someone in marketing think like this could be some good clickbait? Maybe I can slide this under the radar. True. True. Yeah. Sorry yeah. to cut you off. No, no, no. You're right. So it, there's real harm done there. So I could talk about that for hours. 
Yeah, and I and I mean one of the things that we as black people notice is that not only that they they put us in a different light, but they don't even give us to tell our side of the story. Like even if a kid, like the one thing that I I I've seen is like when something happened to a victim or I don't know, or let's say like a robbery or anything like that, and a black man does it, they just put the story there. When a white kid does it, they try to get the parents' perspective or anybody else. They don't try to get the other black bear live unless they're killed or something mm -hmm. that you, or it's on video that we all saw it. And it's like, oh, okay, this is crystal yes. clear. Like we saw this, yes, there's no way you can refute that. You see, and, and this is, that is white violence at work, I can tell you that. Because what they're doing is they have to contextualize it. They have to give you all the reasons why this could possibly, why this could possibly end up like this. Because it, naturally he couldn't, but for, but for a black individual, it's expected. It's expected that you be violent. It's expected that you're going to be in a gang. That's, that's the message that you're getting through those cho editorial choices. And And tell us about something. I mean, because you're in the in that much experience that you had in journalism, the state of black media in Canada. Uh, I mean, in our region, in Atlantic Canada, it, it's it's very limited. But everything is very very limited. When you go to places like Toronto, and and you know things are getting bigger. But what do you think is missing from black media in Canada that you have seen over the years? more of our own platforms and more just more journalists and i'm not talking people who graduate with a journalism degree because that's not even what i'm looking for in in journalists at buy blocks i'm looking for people with something to say right and i'm looking for people with a point of view i'm looking for people with with ideas with you know that can analyze things that can give me an opinion on something right that i haven't heard before and I feel like it is the, the empowerment of, 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 of that group, right, is, is, is changing. It's, it's coming. But I feel like we've been disempowered for so long that we have not felt safe or empowered to bring those voices forward. You'll notice in, the, in, in Black America, they're a lot more, for, like, forthright i put it that way direct there's almost like we have this like fear black people in canada this fear of, of speaking out i'll notice i'll see something wild happening and i'll be like wow if this happened in the states like there would be an uproar but in canada like just take like the blackface with justin trudeau right like look how quickly that went away like there's something about us here in canada that we just i don't know if, if it's an apathy or just like whatever okay you know Or, or if it's a real fear, I haven't put my finger on, maybe it's a, it's a mixture, a, a combination of things, right? But there is a, a level of um, collective power that I think we're, we're still working on. Uh, I, think, I think one of the answers for that is, I think Dr. George Elliott Clark said it to us in one of uh, the interview that he gave us. I think uh, Canada has done an amazing job at erasing Black history and erasing black hate and erasing yeah. black slavery like I, i think that's one of the things that like for example we in canada we joy about us beating the americans and and burning the white house right mm -hmm. uh but we that was before it was a 
a country before Canada was even mm-hmm. declared as a as a union. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We also had slavery before Canada was surprise. Yeah. And when you come to the narrative and saying like, oh, there was slavery. Oh, no, but that was before the union. And I'm like, yeah, so that the White House thing. Uh, but, <laughs> but you guys count that, but you don't count the other one. And I think I think that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that when, when you look at the Justin Trudeau blackface thing, I think one of the reasons that we forgot so quickly is because Canada has done a good job promoting itself as this multicultural melting pot uh like type of thing i always call it the best branding exercise in the world like exactly it's it's it really should be studied honest to god like it's it's incredible yeah we we have uh as a country we have done this saying oh this is a great country free healthcare. we are better we're better than the states that's that's the the, like we we've been branded as that but we we forget to say like oh wait there was slavery there's racism uh you know there's inequality there's all the other stuff that uh, uh, that everybody else has uh but we we try not to show that so i think that's one of the what that's one of the biggest things but I, i think i do agree with you in that part that we we kind of need more just because of the fact that we have so many stories in different places of the country yeah but the fact is is that when you take a look at certain aspects of the stories it will they will never get heard or will mm-hmm. never be heard because uh there's just not the people finding it or the platforms to do it so I mean, yeah, in the in the consulting work that I do, I speak a lot about Black Canadian history, and every time I bring up, you know, certain things, people's jaws are always on their on their tables because they just can't fathom why they never learned about this, and it's very confronting, I think, for people because you've had this vision, this idea. So the, one of the first things I play is remember that Heritage Minute. Uh, Pie, go make it. Oh no! You remember that Heritage Minute with, with the <laughs> with the Underground Railroad? <laughs> oh, we free now. We in Canada, right? That is what I yeah, grew up. I remember on. it now. You yeah, remember that, right? Canada. We in Canada. <laughs> in Canada right? And there, he's hiding in the bench and he gets up, right? Whatever. That's the image that I grew up on of Canada. We're the savior of the slaves. We're you know, this, right? And that is true. I don't get it twisted. I love it here, right? But let's be real about it. If we want to really dismantle these systems of oppression, we have to start with identifying how we got here. And when people start hearing that there were motions uh, put, in, put, in, put forth in government to limit and to stop the immigration of Black people to this country, the reason? Unsuitable for the climate. And to me, that was the laid the groundwork for the diplomatic brand of racism that Canada has has produced. Right. If you look at a place uh, like um, uh, 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 Chatham, Chatham, whose claim to fame, no, Dresden, Dresden, Ontario, whose claim to fame is being one of the stops on the Underground Railroad. Yes, true. But it's also the same town that made national headlines when uh, uh, an author from, interestingly, from um, McLean's magazine wrote this expose about, like, and the, the title was Jim Crow Lives in Dresden. And it, it exposed how divi- segregated that town was, right? In that interview, the mayor at the time said, I really wish the papers would stop writing about this because everyone is treated equally here. Um, but you know what? It's a free country and you can't force businesses to serve Negroes. That, oh was, his God. that was his comment in the interview. 
And when you start to, to, to comb through transcripts from Parliament and realize that the N-word was being used in Parliament. In 1918, there's a quote that I pulled from, from a parliamentarian who said, let us preserve for the sons of Canada the lands that are proposed to be given to the N-word. Like, come on. Like, you know, and when you, when you start pointing out all of your heroes, how all McGill and the founder of McGill University, all of your heroes were slave owners, people start getting real uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Ryerson. Yeah. yeah it, okay. it also it's it's also when you say, for example, uh, in in the Maritimes, if you look at the government, you see that, for example, in New Brunswick, there's no black people in any position of government in mm. any shape or form. There's not even a black supervisor of <laughs> anything. And we, you go ahead, like what? Sorry, go ahead. We did get our first black mayor. Oh in yes, June, didn't we? Yeah, well, the black mayor in Edmonton. Edmonton? No, no, he's in. Uh, uh, no, I think Kasim. Town. No, sorry, Edmonton. I mean. Yeah. No, no, he's up yeah, north. Sorry, but, I always get. But when I mean, when I when I mean, include him now. But that's what I mean. When I mean government, I'm not talking about uh, you know municipal or elective because he got elected. I'm talking about uh, the head of sanitary or like the person that helps you do the paperwork of your license or the person that like mm -hmm. or maybe somebody that will be able to to change the narrative of a department of labor or things like that. There's no black people in charge of anything. And then you realize that, you know, yes, we are a minority and that's that's totally fine. Uh, but then you get to realize that because there's nobody there or any you get the lower wages, you get the lesser jobs or you get or you get no jobs. Right. You get jobs in, in minor in inferior position. So I think what, you know, aggregating to what you're saying is, is that, you know, we are pretty good at hiding that. And but when you talk about that, it gets really uncomfortable. It, it gets it gets into an uncomfortable conversation oh, yeah. uh, that I feel like black media should should exploit that type of conversations because they're necessary. So I think that's that's a that's a very good access. So when you look at your site, like by blacks, uh, and you you and your husband are the ones that that collaborating. I mean, now we're at the age of digital of, of digital, right? We and we're all kind of scrambling because again, I think you just said you go by ads and revenues and things like that. Like when it comes to the aspect of social media for black people, do you think that's helped? us in some type of way or do you think there needs to be some type of changes regarding that because i mean it it has helped amplify voices but it also has kind of messed up certain things like advertising revenue and sometimes even uh, you, you some voices get more amplified than others yeah and and certainly um some voices are intentionally stifled um, so uh, on that note, there have been a lot of drawbacks, I think, um, for marginalized folks in the sense that we have been censored uh, where we don't need to be censored. The same way we're censored in real life is exactly how it happens on social, where you get penalized at work for calling out racism. The same thing happens to you on Facebook and Instagram, where you're talking about racism and they're like, oh, actually, that's offensive. And, and you get banned. Um, so there's that. However, I do strongly believe that there is more benefits um, than drawbacks for Black people specifically. Black Lives Matter would not be Black Lives Matter without Twitter. 
um, th- these these social platforms have allowed us to collaborate, have allowed us to um, to be able to to come together and off of traditional uh, platforms. So I think I think that that we have optimized uh, and gotten the most out of these social media platforms and used it to our advantage, as we always do, because Black people are innovators. And we're going to use whatever means we have to get justice. That's what we do. Yeah, that's right. Hillary, you have a question? Yeah, I've been quiet the whole time just because I think your story is so amazing. And I will point out to any listeners that I am the glue that got all of this together because I'm very fortunate to be writing for Buy Blacks and writing for Black in the Maritimes. So the Ontario transplant gets the benefit of of all of the regionalism put into this one little body. I'm very happy about that. Um, And I wanted to ask just the cliche question, and especially since I'm a part of it, where do you see Buy Blacks going in the future since, you know, there there was this racial revolution, as you said, but I, like you said, you've been doing a lot of things. There's that Black Food Week, and I'm curious to see where you see it going in the future. Yeah, I would really love to be, to build Buy Blacks to a place where we can build other content creators. So when I see people popping up with great content, I get so excited and I'm like, I wish I had a million dollars so I could say, okay, you, you and you, we're going to bring your podcast, Black in the Maritimes. We're going to bring Brandon Gonez. We're going to bring this person, that person. And it's all going to be on a Buy Blacks channel where you can subscribe and flip and, and just subscribe. Just get the content that you really love. And then all everyone can make money together. And we can have so, a department working on sponsorship for you, working on this so that we we each content creator knows how hard it is, how much of a struggle it is to create content and to, to make money, to create content that people love, to pivot, to change, you know, to like serve your audience and then also find someone who wants to also sponsor that. It is exhausting. And I would love to grow to the point where we can be a bedrock for that type of collective uh, content creation. So that's where I see us going, whether it's a by Black CV or uh, or just I have I haven't put my finger down on what it would be called, but just some way that we could bring in um, other content and be that hub in Canada, because like you said, like we're not a huge community. Right. And I always feel like, man, what's the point of us? doing all this disparate work. Like, why can't we have, you know, I I mean, I love competitions. Great. You know, I love having, you know, lots of different sites to go to. There's something for everyone, but you know, I hear that BET is coming to Canada. Um, and they're, they're going to be launching if if not already, they're going to be launching here. And I'm like, man, what like a missed opportunity for, for us to have made something homegrown, um, that could have served our black community here. I think awesome. there's still time. I think there's there's yeah. still time. Even, even if BET comes, I think they came to a little bit too little too late. Uh, but hopefully they, they, they get something. So, I mean, Camille, it's been a pleasure having you. I think it's a... Uh, I think we learned a lot from you and I, hopefully we'll get you back or get your husband. Cause I think it's, I think you guys are, are, are pretty interested. So if people want to find you, where do they go to, to find you and, and buy blacks? Yeah. So we are at buy blacks, B Y B L A C K S on all social media platforms. And uh, you can find me personally on LinkedIn, connect with me there. I do respond to all my messages on LinkedIn. Uh, so feel free to connect with me there. If you, if you want to know anything or you need advice. 
All right. Well, Camille Dundas, thank you so much. Uh, Again, guys, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, whenever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Black in the Maritimes. And give us a nation some PayPal or Patreon. Do you guys have anything else to say? Uh, thanks for listening. Clinton Davis on social media. Uh, Camille, it's such a pleasure to every other week we have a, try to have a guest on and we always learn so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your views with us. Good to be here. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. I was really, really happy that you said yes and had the time to speak with us um, and follow me at Cropberry and then go to Buy Blacks and find my articles there and give them the same views that you're giving me and giving us. Exactly. We yes. share her amazing stuff. Love you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Peace.